Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Alice has already inadvertently prayed for the first prayer point I was going to mention, which is uh, unity. Um, it's a difficult time, isn't it? Uh, people are in different positions, have different feelings about restrictions and about lockdown and about COVID and what have you. Um, and I don't think Christchurch is any different to any other, really, in that regard. Um, and so, uh, wonderfully, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of reporting that th- things are very tense and difficult, but um, we, we don't take that for granted, and we'd appreciate your ongoing prayers for unity as folks have different opinions. And it's, uh, I was preaching um, a couple of weeks ago on uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, Um, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Looking at the speck in your brother's eye and all these sorts of things. And it was just very uh, fitting to come to that passage of scripture at a time when I think think it's just tempting for for us to be judging one another. Um, You know, people take COVID too seriously. People don't take COVID seriously enough. People are breaking the restrictions. All those sorts of things. So we'd we'd appreciate your prayers uh, for unity. Uh, the second point I was going to mention, um, uh, we, some of you will know, we took, on a bil- we took uh, ownership of a building uh, about well, two, two and a bit years ago, um, and uh, that's, a, that's been a great blessing to us. Um, we've uh, recently decided to spend a bit of money on it because it's, uh, it's quite old and it's a bit uh, shabby and not the most welcoming in the world, um, and in the process of trying to sort out some drains down the, ro- the left-hand side of the building, uh, we've discovered uh, that the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Uh, literally, the left-hand side of the building uh, is the foundations are built on sand. Would you believe that a Christian uh, church could be built on sand? But there you go. Um, so we are figuring out uh, what, the, what the damages are in terms of uh, getting that sorted out. But I think it's not going to be cheap, so we'd appreciate prayer uh, for God to provide what we need to shore up the building. Um, uh, and so I think probably the reality is that it's going to still look uh, not the most inviting uh, building in the world, but it, hopefully it will at least not fall down. Uh, so that would be, <laughs> be good. Uh, and the third thing, and again, probably much like every other church, uh, we'd appreciate uh, prayer for us as we seek to share the gospel. Um, it's just so difficult, isn't it, to, to do so. We're grateful for new opportunities. You know, streaming services online has been, has been helpful. Um, but it's difficult to meet people. It's difficult to, to, to share the gospel to, um, uh, in, in the way that we normally would. And so uh, I think we're finding that tough um, and we'd like to uh, have the opportunity to do that more. So uh, there you go, three things. Um, unity, uh, foundations and, uh, and gospel outreach. Us has given me a bit of an update about Hollywell. It's good to hear uh, how you're all doing, and uh, we'll be praying for you uh, back at Christchurch. Well, do um, open up Matthew chapter 6 again if you've uh, closed it, and we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 34 as we've had uh, read out. Uh, let me pray as we come to the word, and then we'll consider it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great privilege it is to be addressed by you. 
So we pray in the words of the the songs that you would speak. We pray that you would speak as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. That you would take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. And we pray these things that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So speak, O Lord, and fulfil in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen. Well, uh, as you find Matthew chapter 6 again, um, I wonder if I can ask you a question uh, to sort of get you thinking about this passage, this very famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And the question is, what did you worry about in bed last night? Uh, what have you been worrying about today? What, what's dominated your thoughts? Uh, what's distracted you from your work uh, or your schoolwork? Um, if there are any children around um, uh, this week? I wonder if you've been able to sleep well over the last 10 months uh, during the sort of restrictions and the COVID uh, sort of season, if we can still call it a season. People's relationship with anxiety uh, varies a great deal, doesn't it? You get the happy-go-lucky sorts who seem to be fairly relaxed and don't ever seem to get anxious. Um, You have uh, those who, in fact, sort of thrive on anxiety, who who turn it into productivity. Uh, It just seems to somehow drive them to ever more efficient behaviour. For some people, anxiety is a constant reality, always there, uh, just lurking beneath the surface. It's out of control and can be even crippling. Affects all areas of life, maybe even get physical symptoms and find decision-making horrible, uh, even impossible. And then probably you get lots of people who, who, who are mostly fine, uh, but, but there are a few things that just really stress them out and they can get consumed by them for a period of time. This passage uh, that Jesus uh, addresses us here in, it, it, it speaks to all of us. It speaks to those who experience anxiety very acutely, and maybe that's you if you're someone who really suffers, if you like, from anxiety. But it also speaks to those who, who just would say, I'm not very anxious. It's just not really an issue for me. I don't get worried. Because Jesus says there are some things that should fill your mind. There are some things that you should be, well, not worried about, but concerned with. There are some things you should invest yourself in, spend yourself on, give yourself to. We're going to look at the passage in two sections. Uh, the majority of our time, we'll look at the first seven or eight verses, verse 25 through to 32, under the heading, Do Not Worry. Uh, and then, more briefly, we'll look at verses 33 and 34, Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God. So let's look at our first point then. Uh, Do not worry. And that's what Jesus says, isn't it, in verse 25. That's why I tell you, uh, do not worry. Just going to bring up the passage. Uh, You think you use the NIV here mostly, don't you? Right, so I'm trying to work from that this evening. Bear with me. In fact, why don't I just back up by one verse. Verse 24, it's helpful to hear what Jesus has just said. No one can serve two masters, 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, the reason I read verse 24 there is because it's helpful context. The word translated uh, worry in this passage has the idea of dividing the mind. Picks up on the same idea of verse 24. You can't have, you can't, if you like, be a slave of two masters. You can't divide yourself between serving God and serving money. You cannot do both. It's the same word also used in Luke chapter 10, a passage that many people will be familiar with, where, where Mary and Martha are, uh, are reacting rather differently to Jesus' presence. And Mary sits at Jesus' feet and listens to him, while Martha, what does she do? She runs around, uh, sorting out the house and preparing a meal. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, it says, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And then Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried. That's the word, the same word that we've got here, do not worry. Martha, Martha, you are worried, listen to this, by many things, but one thing is necessary. You can hear there, can't you, the idea of division, dividing herself. Mary has made the right choice, he says, and it will not be taken from her. So a worried life is a divided life. And the problem with a divided life is it's actually not divided at all. A divided life ends up with the unimportant taking the place of what's actually important. Now, it's worth clarifying at this point that what Jesus is talking about here uh, is that kind of anxiety that leads to your thoughts being dominated, your mind being taken over. He's not saying that it's wrong to, uh, you might think he might be saying this but from the passage, but he's not saying it's wrong to think about putting food on the table. It's okay to consider how you're going to pay the bill or how you're going to uh, get some food onto the table. But he's addressing that worry that takes over. And I think we all know what that's like. Where you just, you can't stop thinking about something. You can't concentrate on anything Else And your anxiety is just lurking there, isn't it? Just under the surface, ready to break out. Perhaps uh, it feels like the, the, you know, the only way out of the situation is for something to improve, whatever it might be. So, so some more money coming along to plug that hole or a broken relationship being fixed. It's difficult to rest when you've got a broken relationship with somebody, isn't it? Uh, perhaps it's the exam being over that's weighing on you. Perhaps it's somebody's health improving, someone who you're worried about. Uh, Perhaps it's all the jobs being ticked off the list and when you've got that list and it's just sitting there and it's not finished, you just can't concentrate. But the truth is that those things won't satisfy. Someone's health improving, the money being provided, the jobs being ticked off, they won't satisfy. If you live a divided life, your life will be consumed by your worries and you'll miss the ultimate thing that does matter. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Don't worry about your life. Don't let the needs of your life dominate your thinking. And he's got some pretty essential needs here in mind, doesn't he? Have a look again at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. They're pretty basic needs, aren't they? Food, drink, clothing. 
life. <laughs> if we got to this sermon a couple of years ago, perhaps this wouldn't have had the same impact on us as it might do today. But there are many, there have been much more issues, there are many more problems, haven't there, with things like food supplies in the last year. You know, panic buying and stockpiling and, you know, shops running out of things and those sorts of things. And that's before you start thinking about how you're going to pay for the food and for other basic things like clothes. Maybe you've been on furlough. Maybe you're out of work completely. Uh, Maybe you're struggling to get enough money together to pay the bills or to feed the kids. Maybe you shelled out on a new uniform for the kids just before uh, lockdown and now the schools are closed. And you know that as soon as they open up again, kids have shot up and you're going to have to go and buy yet another set of school clothes. Maybe the car's broken down. There are all sorts of things, aren't there? Well, here's the thing. Jesus, knowing all of those things and whatever else it is that comes into your mind when you consider what it is that weighs on you and burdens you, knowing all of those reasons, he still says to us right now, don't worry. Why not? Look at the end of verse 25. Isn't life more than food? And the body more than clothes? Just think about that for a moment. Isn't life more than food? And the body more than clothes? Those are the ultimate things that we end up worrying about, aren't they? It's a question that carries a different weight, again, now than it might have done a couple of years ago. The, the, the COVID pandemic has, has made it clear that in the world's eyes, certainly in the government's eyes, life really is only, ultimately, about food and the body is only about clothing. You know, essentials. <laughs> That's why churches in the first two lockdowns could be classed as non-essential and just closed down as if, as if life ultimately is simply about staying alive. But we know that's not true, don't we? We know that life is not just about putting food into our bodies and keeping them warm. The famous first question of the Westminster Catechism, such a helpful question to consider and to come back to time and again. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what's our purpose? What are we here for? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, the point is this. Life and our bodies, they're gifts. They're gifts from God. You know, we don't create life. None of us ever decided to come into the world. The very fact that you are alive right now It's because God willed it and decided to give you life. So, if God has given you the gift of life, do you think that he's now not going to sustain your life for his own purposes? Of course, that doesn't mean that we'll live to 100 years old and have an easy life, but it does mean this. If he's given us life and he's given us our bodies... His purposes for us will be fulfilled. God never leaves unfinished any work he has begun. Liam Golliger, a Presbyterian preacher in America, uh, 
tells the story of, a, of being on a plane on a, a flight with um, Sinclair Ferguson. And as they were coming into land, the, there was a sort of deafening bang. Uh, and the plane lurched. And everyone started screaming and panicking. And then, miraculously, wonderfully, the pilot got control of the plane and he managed to sort of bring it back up again and then to land it safely. And as the plane came to a standstill, uh, Sinclair turned to Liam and he said, Liam, Oliver Cromwell once said, every man is immortal until his work is done. I'm betting on God still having something for you to do. (laughs) I think that's incredibly helpful, isn't it? And it's very, very freeing as well. Of course, we might want to live for a hundred years and to plan things to go differently, but God, our Heavenly Father, He knows what's best. And He will fulfill His good purposes for us. That's a guarantee. Well, Jesus then unpacks what he means with these two illustrations. Firstly, the birds. Let's have a look at verses 26 and 27. And Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? God provides for the birds. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? He provides for the birds. The uh, 1689 Baptist Confession puts it like this. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes and governs all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least. He upholds every creature from the greatest to the least. Everything down to providing insects for birds to feast on. It goes on, by his most wise and holy providence. In other words, he will provide for them. That's what providence means, providence. And then it finishes like this. If you like, it answers the question, what for? To the end for which they were created. In other words, so that his purposes might be fulfilled. Well, maybe you say, but hold on, we do need farmers to sow and to reap and to gather into barns or to get their combine harvesters to do it all for them. Well, yes, that's right. And there's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong about that. That's not the point that Jesus is making. In fact, the confession goes on, helpfully, in this way. It says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, God described there as the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. That's tricky language, isn't it? It's a fancy way of saying that God's purposes are always fulfilled exactly as he plans. Yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. God is the first cause. God is the primary cause. And, well, there are many, many secondary causes or second causes. And we, humans, are amongst them. We still cause things to happen, even though God is the 
first cause that stands behind us. So it's not a fight between, sort of, if you like, the, our actions on the one hand and God's actions on the other, as if somehow when we sow seeds in a field, we're not trusting in the providence of God. Michael Allen puts it like this, human action never occurs at the same level as God's action. For God does not exist in the same manner that human beings do. He causes us to act, but we do truly act. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? (laughs) And he chooses, in his providence, to work through our actions to provide. And so we can say at the same time, wonderful, hard-working farmers, and praise God for providing for us. So ploughing a field, that's not wresting control off God or, or taking his place as provider or anything like that. God works through the farmer ploughing a field and sowing seeds and all these things in order to provide for us. But the point is this. We are to look to God to provide. We're to rely on him alone because he's the one who gives the increase. You know, the farmer isn't to obsess over the weather and spend his time staring up into the sky. God is the one who provides. But notice the subtle shift in Jesus' language here, middle of verse 26. They do not, the birds, the birds do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. A couple of key points here. Firstly, notice that Jesus is addressing believers. You see that? He says, your heavenly father. So these are particular promises for the Christian. God promises to provide what the Christian needs, what his children need to do his work. It's not, therefore, a universal promise that all people will have whatever they want so they can serve their own desires. Secondly, it sets up what he's going to go on to say at the end of the verse. Aren't you much more valuable than they? Put it like this. God takes care of these birds. He provides grubs and insects for them. They have value. It's It's a work of the Almighty to provide for these tiny, fluttery little things. They're precious in his sight. Well, if that's true, how much more, how much more will he take care of you? Will he take care of man made in his image and especially Christians, his children? Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Remember that he sees you as his child in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll cease to be concerned and worried and anxious about these things. Besides, to ram his point home, Jesus shows that worrying is, is pointless anyway. Verse 27, can any, so who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? It's worth saying briefly, in case you've got a different translation, you might have something that says something along the lines of, who of you by worry can add a single cubit to his height? And you might think, well, what's that all about? Well, 
The word in the original does mean cubit, which is a distance of 45 centimetres or something like that, and so height. What's that all got, what's that got to do with hours and life? Well, the way I like to explain this, my youngest son, Malachi, he sometimes looks at me and my friend Nathan. Nathan's about a foot and a half taller than me, but he's about five years younger than me. And he says, Daddy, which one of you is older? And the reason he asks that is because he sees Nathan and he goes, well, Nathan's taller than you and bigger people are taller, aren't they? You know, it's true usually of a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old, but it's not true of a 40-year-old and 35-year-old. That's the connection, height and age. And so when it says who can add a single cubit to his height, it's got that idea of adding a single hour to his lifespan. Well, who of you can? Our world thinks we can. We think that medical knowledge and skill can extend life. And of course, at one level, they can. I'm not suggesting we should not go to hospitals or not take medicines and all these things. But here's the truth. They cannot, medical experts, doctors, nurses, medication, none of these things can overrule the plan and the purposes of God. In fact, they are means within God's providence, aren't they? They are secondary causes. And he, the first cause, stands behind them. Doctors are secondary causes. They're provided by God. Our times, our lives, our seconds, our hours are in the hands of God. And no matter what we do, with all the food and drink and all the combined skills of the medical profession, however effective you think lockdowns are, or however, however pointless you think they are, perhaps, we cannot add a single fraction of a millisecond to the duration of our lives, which are held in God's hands, sustained by his will, and will end at his perfect timing. So if you grasp that, then Jesus says, what's the point in worrying? It's a complete waste of time and effort. When you allow worry to take over, when you obsess over surviving and you lose all sense of what life is actually about, you're trying to step into the shoes of the life giver. And we're not the life giver. We're life receivers. (laughs) You can't start life and you can't extend life beyond our Father's plan. Not by even a moment. Well, that's the birds. And then his second illustration is the flowers. Let's read verse 28. And why do you worry about your clothes? About clothes, sorry. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendour, was dressed like one of these. You know the story of Solomon, King Solomon in the Old Testament, rich beyond imagination. Beautiful clothing, palaces with Furniture overlaid with gold and jewels and what have you. And Jesus says, that's nothing. (laughs) Nothing compared with a common flower. Every year we get some alliums in our garden. They're some of my favourites. They're about two feet tall. And they have these sort of snake heads that kind kind of come up and poke forwards. Snake heads for buds. And when they burst open, every head, of which there are probably, I don't know, 25 or 30 on each, on each stem, every head bursts forth and has 50 
deep purple flowers with six petals on each. Yeah, incredible. Each one's only a few millimetres wide. They're like, they're, like, they're like firework displays in slow motion. We can't match the beauty of God's design, can we? It's the hand of God that we see when we look into our gardens when the weather improves. Even tiny flowers that might never be seen by the human eye are perfectly clothed by God. It's like the argument of the birds, uh, argument of the birds again, isn't it? If that's how, verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, or tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith? This is how beautiful God makes the wild flowers. They're not even sown by human hand. And they get cut down, they get dried out, and then they get used as fuel for the fire. Here one minute, gone the next. If that's how he does, if that's how he clothes, if that's how he beautifies something which will be used as fuel, then how is he going to look after you? You who are not here today and gone tomorrow in, in one sense, of course we're not, we're not immortal in the, in the way that God is, we haven't always been, but once created we belong to eternity and when our mortal bodies are cast off we are not gone in fact we're just getting started he says it's not true to say of us that we're here today and gone tomorrow we have an eternal existence beyond the grave and death and when you realize that about yourself can you could you imagine could you believe that god who made you for eternity would neglect your body while you're in this life and world uh, for, your, for his purposes. Notice again that Jesus is speaking to believers. He says, you have little faith. He doesn't say, you have no faith. So they have faith, but worrying like this, obsessing over these things, is a mark, Jesus says, of weak faith, of little faith. We sometimes make the mistake, don't we, of thinking that faith is only about trusting in Jesus' death in our place for our salvation. And don't get me wrong, that is the foundation, of course. That's the heart of our faith. But true faith goes further, doesn't it? It extends to the whole of life. It includes trusting God to provide what we need day by day to go about his work. And being of little faith, well, that means being mastered by your circumstances, lying awake at night and going round and round thinking about them. Our lives shouldn't look like carbon copies of people who don't know Christ, who don't know that we live in a fathered world, that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us, which is the point that Jesus goes on to make next. So verses 31 and 32, So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus says worrying is behaving like the pagans. Those who don't know God. Like I say, those who can't call him heavenly Father. We Christians, we don't need to obsess over these things because we know that what? That our heavenly Father knows that we need them. God who has set out 
before time the good purpose and the plan, perfect plan for your life also has a perfect plan to provide everything you need for you to fulfil it. So that's the first point, do not worry. Uh, Let's look more briefly at verses 33 and 34. Seek first the kingdom of God. And the question is, well, what should we do instead? We shouldn't worry, we shouldn't, remember, divide our minds by stressing out about where food's going to come from. What are we supposed to give our minds in? The answer is in, well, it's in the title that I just gave you, but it's in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given you as well. Seek first, says Jesus. This is the number one. It comes ahead of everything else. It's the same priorities as we see in the Lord's Prayer earlier on in chapter 6. Notice that before Jesus gets to the practical needs, like give us today our daily bread, he says, pray hallowed be your name. Pray your kingdom come. Pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So don't seek first your daily bread. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it means means being more concerned with right worship of God, the chief end of man, now that... Sorry, I'm going to try that again. It It means being more concerned with right worship of God now than with just staying alive for the sake of staying alive. We can't buy into the world's lies that food and drink are the only essentials for our existence. That's built on a misunderstanding of what it is to be a human being made in the image of God. Seeking first the kingdom of God means sitting like Mary at the feet of Jesus, as we will worship at the feet of Jesus in the kingdom to come. It means investing now in the ways of the new kingdom, the ways of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It means that as we come face to face with the remnants of this fallen world, and it's in the papers, isn't it, every day, pain and suffering and death, it means longing for our heavenly home. It means greater joy at seeing Christ formed in ourselves and in those that we know than in a job promotion or or the next Lego set or, or being out of lockdown. It means praying for Christ to be exalted in the lives of those who reject him. And it's important to be clear, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, it, it doesn't mean that we can somehow work our way or earn our way to heaven. Jesus is addressing those, hasn't he? Throughout, he's been addressing those who already call God our heavenly Father. So how can we do that? We can call God our heavenly Father because his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and lived a life where he didn't just seek the kingdom of God, he established the kingdom of God. He lived a life of righteousness, trusted his father to provide all that was needed for him to fulfil his mission. And he did that even when it was painful and difficult for him. 
Jesus the, the Son obeyed the Father's will in everything, climaxing in his death on the cross for those who have rejected his kingdom. And he did all that to exhaust our penalty for rejecting the king, so that we, if you like, the pagans of this passage, might receive his righteousness as a free gift. And that we might become sons and daughters of the king. So, let me say, if you're someone who hasn't yet put your trust in Jesus, please do ask more about how you can call on God as your heavenly father, how you can be adopted as one of his children. But for many of us, if you're already a Christian, the question is this, how are you seeking first his kingdom and his, right, his, kingdom and his righteousness? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed, for they will be filled. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that God rewards those who diligently seek him. So we need to ask, are we investing our time in growing in our walk with the Lord? Are we giving of ourselves in prayer? Are we diligently seeking God? There's something higher up the essentials list, isn't there, than making sure we've earned enough money to pay the bills. If you're the head of a household, are you providing spiritually for your household? Is that your top priority? Your priority, or if you have one, uh, your family's, is to be established in an environment where the word is faithfully taught and where you are reinforcing the teaching of the word throughout the week in the household. Parents, are you training your children to treasure things above rather than to treasure things like toys and fun and films and food and what have you for hope and joy? Husbands, are you reminding your wives not to worry, not to divide uh, their minds by being dominated by responsibilities? Wives, are you reminding your husbands of the very same things? Brothers and sisters, do you, do you only sympathise with each other's worries? You know that thing where you hear someone's worries, oh, I'm so sorry, yes, oh, I, I, I can imagine. Or are we reminding each other to seek first his kingdom? We need to be like Mary. She made the right choice, didn't she? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says. And guess what? All these things will be given to you. In fact, the version here doesn't say all these things will be given to you as well. God will provide all that you need to fulfill his purposes for your life. And then in verse 34, Jesus adds this, Therefore don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the third time in this short passage that Jesus has said, don't worry. But this time he takes it a step further. He turns his focus to the future. And he says, you know what, you don't need to worry about that either. I think this uh, verse is really quite wonderful. I think it just shows how well Jesus knows us, doesn't it? Have you, have you ever had that experience of talking to somebody who's, who's really worried? Someone who's really stressed out about something. And you, and you can see they don't need to be. 
And actually, on this rare occasion, you, you sit them down and you work through all the reasons why they don't need to be worried. And you explain them away. Well, you don't need to worry about that because of this. You don't need to worry about that because of this. You don't need to worry about that. And on this occasion, just this once, you get through. And they actually relax. And you see them visibly lower their shoulders and sort of... There is enough food for today. What happens next? What about tomorrow? (laughs) You know, that worry, that that thing that you've managed to sort of slay and say, look, that thing, you don't need to worry about. The next worry just creeps in, doesn't it? It just comes straight in to replace the one that's been removed. You see, removing worries doesn't deal with the problem. That's why you hear about people who've got so much in their lives. You know, money and food and big house, perfect life, all these things, good health. And they're still plagued by compulsive anxiety. And, and saying to someone in that situation, oh, you don't need to worry. Can't you see all these wonderful things you've got? It just doesn't even touch the surface. It just flies by them. Jesus' lesson here is simple. Each day has enough trouble for itself. What we've got here is the, a description of the daily walk of the Christian. So as we learn, as we... As we take those first verses and we learn to, this day, to seek first his kingdom, to entrust our concerns to our heavenly Father, that he will provide what we need as we seek first his kingdom. The devil loves to bring fresh reasons to worry. What about tomorrow? And I guess now this is even more true than ever. As we continue to live under restrictions, even if we're not maybe as concerned as we once were about the illness itself, perhaps... Our worries maybe turn to other things, turn to the future. Well, what's going to happen to my taxes? What's going to happen to my job? What's going, to happen, what's going to happen to the state of my kids' education when we come out the other side of this thing? There, are, there is a never-ending list of things that we can be concerned about, isn't there? Well, Hebrews 13, listen to this. When the Hebrew Christians are passing through troubles and difficulties, what does the author of the letter Uh, say to them. He tells them not to worry. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. The God who helps us today and who has helped us in the past will be the same tomorrow and he'll help us then. So when the devil attacks, we can say, "Well, the God who I'm trusting today I'm going to trust him tomorrow as well. I'm not going to think about tomorrow right now because I'm, I'm just trusting him for today and I'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow. Well, I won't worry about tomorrow because I'll trust him tomorrow. He is the same God. He doesn't change. And as I trust him to provide for today, I can trust him to provide for tomorrow too. The unchanging God doesn't become any less reliable as the days go by. I think that's immensely liberating and it frees us to get on with the daily business, the focus of what Jesus says in this passage, the much more valuable business, the eternity lasting business of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray as we close.